Amen. Well, when the subject of uh, considering the poor or giving in general comes up, it immediately produces in most of us, let's face it, feelings of guilt. We first think in terms of obligation on this matter. Well, I ought to, or I really need to. And, sad to say, there are churches that seem to use guilt to motivate, if not manipulate people, to give more. Some people have even come to call it the Sunday morning stick-up. Well, in the Bible, we find a vastly different approach, I want you to notice, with very different motivations, at least uh, uh, ordinarily. We again and again find uh, talk about happiness and blessedness. Uh, Jesus himself said it's more blessed to give than to receive. It's not only true of boxers. The word that he uses there, blessed, is, you guessed it, you've learned me by now, uh, markarios, the ordinary Greek word in that case for happy. Happy is the one. Uh, It's more happy to be the one giving than the one receiving. He doesn't say, you know, it's more righteous to give than to receive, though I suppose he could. He doesn't say, you're more obligated to give than to receive, though I suppose that might even have its place. But again and again, my point is, if you ask, what what is the emphasis of Scripture? The way to greater happiness, says the Lord, is to give than to receive. Someone uh, even counted verses and showed that the Lord spoke more about money than he did about heaven and hell combined. I haven't done that analysis myself, so I can't necessarily endorse it. But I do know this. There are a few principles in the Scripture that do have more potential for enriching and enlarging our lives with happiness than the principle of living generously and cheerfully. Why? Because God cares how we spend our resources, not because God has any lack, but because He knows us, and he knows that there's this strange nerve that runs directly from our wallets to our hearts and behaves in a way we might not expect. Now, as we've considered so far in our series, happiness isn't always valued or pursued as it ought to be in the church. In fact, we've even heard people say that uh, God really wants us to be happy, not holy setting these things against each other when they should never be. Or sometimes happiness is downplayed as a superficial feeling that is dependent upon our circumstances. Well, if that's what we mean by happiness, uh, mere animal pleasure, we might say uh, we are to turn away from pursuing merely that. But we've seen that promises, not just of happiness, but of joy and gladness, and many other such words, tend to go with these promises of blessed happiness. And so we shouldn't rule out even very, very happy feelings as a part of what God has promised us. It's definitely true that the Bible speaks of happiness in a much broader and larger sense than we do generally today. The happy life is the blessed life, a full life, a meaningful life, a life that greatly pleases both God and the godly who live it. 
And we also said that such blessed happiness does not mean a, a life devoid of sorrow, loss, pain, sickness, or trial, as David knew all too well. It does mean, however, that there are perhaps through tears and heartaches, losses and trials, uh, nevertheless a deeply happy life. And God has designed us to long to be happy. God often promises us happiness. Uh, came across a quote by A.W. Tozer this week, he wrote many years ago, that God himself takes holy pleasure in the happiness of his people. I hope we've got some sense of that so far from our study of the Psalms. Hence it is that this book of Psalms, when we turn to it, what do we find? But word one is happy. Wow. Psalm one and Psalm two, which are set forth as the introduction to the Psalter, begin and end with a promise of happiness. In particular, happy is the one who delights in God's law, and happy is the one who trusts in God's Son. This frames the rest of all that we are to read. This psalm that I have here, Psalm, uh, 50, psalm 41, also begins with the word happy. Um, which, as it is here in the New King James, as it is in many of your translations, is translated blessed. As I've explained before, there's various kinds of blessed. This is the happy blessed, right? Um, and just another word about this, by the way, you might notice that uh, Psalm 42, right before Psalm 42, your Bible probably has something like book two. Like book, book two? Perhaps you've never noticed, but the Psalter has five books. Explained this before, but it's been some time. There are five books or parts or groupings of psalms in the Psalter, and they all have their place in the historical life of Israel and different emphases and authors and, and so forth. Uh, all of the psalms in book one are expressly uh, noted as psalms of David, uh, except for one and two don't have that uh, title. Again, that's the special introduction. Uh, there's one exception that I can explain if necessary, but... Um, uh, so uh, Psalm 1, the first collection that was made, the, the Davidic collection, not that we don't see Psalms of David elsewhere, but uh, these especially 100% Davidic Psalms. And what do we find here in this very first collection, the primitive collection of the Psalter? We find that in Book 1, it begins with a psalm of happiness. It ends with a psalm of happiness. Both the first psalm and the last psalm begin the same way with the word happy. And this blessed divine happiness, I say, frames and puts into context all the other trials and sufferings that we read through book one. As though to say, just like the life of David, there's going to be much godly weeping that will endure for the night. But joy does come in the morning, and what characterizes the life of David is not his sadness, but his blessed happiness, as it will every godly man who finds his way uh, similarly. Well, the godly life is the happy life, and despite all the trials and pains we must endure, we wouldn't exchange it for anything. And so in this series, I have called it the Psalter's Open Secret of happiness. 
why a secret? Well, everyone wants to know the secret of happiness. It seems to be so elusive. There must be some secret somewhere. Uh, the, the book of Psalms says, I know, I know. It's not a secret. It's an open secret if it is. Uh, it makes no attempt to conceal the answer. You turn, you turn to it and it will say, happy are those who, whose sins are forgiven. Happy are those who are pilgrims to God's house. Happy are those who trust in the Lord. Happy are those whom the Lord has chosen and caused to be near him. And as we've seen, uh, these things are the foundation of the great happiness of our lives. And our study today will be about one more kind of happiness announced in the first verse, the beginning of Psalm 41. Happy is the one who considers the poor. Ha blessed or happy, happily blessed, blessedly happy is he who considers the poor. That will be our subject today. Now, this uh, psalm has an obvious connection with the one before it. Uh, Psalter is put together very artistically, um, and uh, it's another whole story, but uh, here in Psalm 40, if you just look up one single verse, you you'll find in Psalm 40, the last verse, David saying, um, the Lord be magnified, but I am poor and needy. Yet the Lord thinks upon me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. Uh, that, that's virtually a summary of the psalm that follows, the psalm before us today. I am poor and needy, yet the Lord thinks upon me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. Psalm 41 then begins at this very point with a promise that God will bless all those who regard the poor and needy people just like him. Um, and there may be some variation in your translation. Let me explain. Instead of the word poor, the New American Standard has the word helpless. The NIV has the word weak. Blessed is he who considers the weak, uh, is concerned for the weak. Um, you say, I, I don't understand. Poor is not the same thing as helpless and weak, is it? Well, this is not the word that... Uh, primarily means financially poor, although it is used in that sense, Exodus 30, other places. And when it's used in that way, the, the word seems to represent those who have little, not those who have nothing. So in other words, uh, you might say the, the people who live more or less hand to mouth, not people who are destitute, who have nothing. Okay. So uh, this is a word, though, that has as its root meaning not really financial poverty, but in its linguistic root, being low or, or hanging down. And it uh, refers often uh, metaphorically to being a lowly person, including weak or distressed. For example, Gideon mentions the weakness of his clan when God calls him to deliver Israel. Ah, but I'm, I'm from the weakest of Israel's clans. That's the same word. David describes himself in such words, poor and needy, weak and lowly in this sense. He was at a very low point in his life. And as we read later in this psalm, in particular, David is sick. He's being slandered by his enemies who can't wait for him to die. He's, he's surrounded by false friends and even betrayed by one whom he trusted. Well, this psalm notes that neither David's enemies nor his friends are being merciful to him, so he seeks the Lord's mercy. And what is his claim? His chief 
reason for appealing to God's mercy is that he has been merciful himself. Uh, as the Lord said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. David makes that very appeal back to God. So um, I'm just saying here when we're talking about considering the poor, it's not just saying, oh, I ought to give more money to him who has uh, less financial resources than me. Perhaps we think that being poor is even something rather different than being lowly or weak, but that is not exactly the truth. It's more of our rich American mindset, frankly. Why? Because what is poverty? What is poverty? Americans think in terms of material need. We can solve it by taking money from here and putting it over there. However, if you ask the poor of the world, they will describe it not as a material need, but as a miserable experience. Here are some actual quotes from a book called Voices of the Poor that seek to make this point. A man, one man says, for a poor, poor person, everything is terrible. Humiliation, shame. We depend on everyone. No one needs us. Another, when I don't have any food to bring my family, I borrow mainly from neighbors and friends. I feel ashamed standing before my children when I have nothing to help feed the family. I'm not well when I'm unemployed. I'm terrible, another says. During the past two years, we have not celebrated any holidays with others. We cannot afford to invite anyone to our house and feel and we feel uncomfortable visiting others without a single present. The lack of um, contact, the lack of contact leaves us depressed, creates a constant feeling of unhappiness and a sense of low esteem. Well, I could go on, but you get the point that they're making. Uh, Americans might think that poverty is just a certain lack of resources, and if we just gave some more resources, we could fix the problem. People who actually live in poverty describe it as a miserable experience of powerlessness, humiliation, shame, inferiority, hopelessness, even isolation and depression. Some of the things that David himself describes here and elsewhere. So it's not just being financially short, it's being, you might say, poor and needy, um, lowly, um, despised. But happy is the man who considers the poor and needy, not necessarily giving money or other material resources, although that could be helpful. But even to one like David, uh, one um, suffering, sick, despised, rejected, a man by, may by showing mercy, caring, loving, giving help, hospitality, love, other assistance, be the one who considers the one who is low. There are many needs and therefore many ways to help one who is such a lowly one. So I'd like to make three points from the psalm today. And on the line of helplessness, um, number one is cheerfulness comes from giving. Cheerfulness comes from giving. Again, giving in the broad sense of that word to one who is low. Uh, this will be by far my longest point, don't worry. Happy is the one who considers the poor, that is, one who is concerned for and mindful to help the poor and needy. 
cheerfulness that comes from giving. Happy is the one who helps. Now, as I said, God doesn't want to uh, have our motivation for our concern for others to be one out of mere guilt or duty. God is not pleased with an uncheerful giver. So he doesn't lay uncheerful reasons before such obligations. Does that make sense? If he doesn't want you to be unhappy doing it, he won't guilt you into doing it by making you, making you unhappy. Um, that uh, verse I mentioned to you earlier, I've been dancing around, is from 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7. Let each man give as he purposes in his heart to give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Not grudgingly. Not out of necessity or compulsion. Now, it may seem counterintuitive, but God is inviting us to happiness. And when God invites us to live generously, it's not because he wants to kill our happiness, but because he wants to fill our happiness. He, he wants his children to have richer lives, not poorer lives, bigger lives, not smaller lives. He's out for our joy, one author comments. When people are generous and gracious, they exude love and happiness. There's something very attractive, is there not, about those who have a sense of kindness, who do thoughtful things for others, who pick up a bill or go out of their way to do a favor. Generous people create positive feelings in their relationships. They cause others to want to be around them. Well, I could go on, but my point is God wishes all of his children to have such a, a blessedly happy experience along with everybody in their orbit. And in, in the same context as that verse I just mentioned about giving cheerfully, uh, the churches of Macedonia are singled out for praise in particular, not because they actually had so much to give, because the truth is they had very little to give, but it, even in their great trial of affliction, we read about the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality and how happy they were that they could actually do something to relieve their dear brothers and sisters in Judea. Well, I think this is one of the biggest struggles in many hearts. I mean, there is something inside of us that says, yes, we, we, we do want to, to be these uh, generous people, to live generously, to, to be thoughtful and bountiful toward others, to just give ourselves to people and purposes that make a difference and, and count for eternity. And wow, wouldn't it be great if we had such a life? But then there's this other voice that says, no, actually, perhaps that would make you unhappy. Uh, really, you say? Yes, um, uh, aren't you afraid of what you might lose or what you might not have? Hmm. So we, we waver, we, we hedge. Uh, the Bible says you, you need to take this as a calculated risk, uh, a risk that comes with a calculation for your happiness. Okay? Happiness, it assures us, will come more from spending your lives and giving your lives than from trying to save something for some future thing. And there's a reason why the word miser has the same root as miserable, because stingy people are virtually never happy people. They may have a great deal, but you wouldn't want to trade places with them because they are miserable. Well, 
Some of you know the very unusual life of Hetty Green, born back in 1834 to a wealthy whaling family. Hetty Green inherited $5 million, um, well over $70 million or $80 million today, from her parents uh, when they passed away. And uh, she was famous in her day for being the richest woman in America. Um, she could have been just as famous for being the stingiest woman in all of America. To save, to save money, she never turned on the heat. She never used hot water. She wore one old black dress and instructed the one who did her laundry only to wash the dirty hems to save money on soap. Not a lie. When her son Ned broke his leg as a child, she tried to have him admitted to a free clinic for the poor, but when they recognized who she was, she was forced to take him to other doctors, and because of that delay, his leg actually had to be amputated. She died with a net worth today equivalent to some $3 billion. So she was very successful in scrimping and saving and investing that money to be an enormous sum. But you, you, of course, see that in another sense, she died an extremely poor, miserable, wretched woman indeed. What, what was she hoping to gain? Money had the strange grip on her. She, she loved it, she cherished it, she hoarded it, and yet she never used it. And for all, the, all that she possessed, you think that might have made her happy somehow. The truth is, she was a pitifully wretched, miserable person. It makes you wonder, what, what value does money have if it's just accumulating in a bank somewhere? You say, well, I, I, I'd, I'd be happy for a little more. <laughs> um, but this question hangs over our lives in a spiritual sense where, in a, in a, it just uh, getting away from money for a second, God, in, in the most general way, has been so good to us. He's been very generous to each one of us, and, and not just materially. We, we are rich. He's given us much. We're, we're heirs of a kingdom. Look at all these brothers and sisters we talked about this morning, and, and so forth. But, but what is the value of God's generosity to us if we're only, as it were, hoarding it and not spending it? What will we do with all of this in the, in, that the Lord has given to us? Living generously, in general, living generously invites us to be the people we would love to be, to use all that we have to bring happiness to ourselves and others. Those who give generously of their time, money, energy, talents, and themselves to others, and the work of God particularly, will find that rather than being depleted, their, their lives are wonderfully enlarged. And Proverbs eleven twenty five puts it this way, a generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. N never think that you don't have much to offer in the service of the Lord. You say, well, look, I, I have this, I have no income, no cash flow, and I have no budget, but, 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 but you, you have much to offer as a human being. Never think that your life is insignificant or useless in the kingdom of God. God has entrusted to you love, abilities, compassion, kindness, uh, opportunities for encouragement or practical service. On and on it goes even if you have not a penny to your name. Living generously begins by recognizing that God has been very gracious and generous to us in giving us all that we have, life, breath, and all things, not to mention he spared not his own son. And this is also the Macedonians' joyful 
discovery when they said, hey, actually, we don't have anything to give, but, you know, we would love to enjoy giving what we could possibly scrape together to, to be able to show the love to our beloved Judeans. I mean, we don't, we don't really have anything to make us happy, but we could be happy if we could give just a little bit to make them happy. The uh, statesman Edmund Burke wrote, nobody made a greater mistake than he did who did nothing because he could only do a little. Nobody made a greater mistake than he who did nothing because he could only do a little. Has Jesus given you anything, even a little? Do you have at least some divine compassion or truth combined with love and hope? Well, invest those things in the lives of others. Have an eye for, be concerned for, whoever is lowly. It's a pretty general word for a very big need. Now, one of the things that regularly hinders people from helping others is that they're persuaded that, well, even if I could help, even if I could, let's say, sacrificially scrape together a little money, it, it wouldn't matter because the problem is simply too big. And um, it's a bottomless pit of need. I mean, it's basically throwing your money into a bottomless pit, as it were, and you're convinced that a good deed wouldn't make any measurable difference in other people. Well, you, you notice where this psalm starts. It actually doesn't start with the others. It starts with you. What will bring happiness to you? Let's start there, says the psalm, and many other similar passages, and says, really, it, it, it doesn't matter what you have or you don't have, as, as Paul puts it. It's, it's not whether you can fully meet the need or barely do anything. Why don't you become happy? Why don't you begin to live generously? Why don't you be a more blessed person of a blessed God and become more Christ-like in this way, having an eye for the lowly people that you meet, changing your just general approach and demeanor to give good even if people deserve bad and so be like your Father in heaven who's kind to the evil and unthankful, Jesus says. Just change the mindset to get out of the I ought to and to say, what would bring me, ha- what does God say would bring me happiness? And this mindset answers many practical questions. We, we say, look, well, how can we balance living generously with other necessities like savings and retirement and paying off debt? And, and the simple answer is, well, well, just try to be as happy as you can afford to be. There's a place for all those things in your life. And, and in your budget, a, a place that will bring happiness in all those things. And it's, it's not just a matter of saving or giving. God instructs us to do both in his word. He has all kinds of wisdom. Um, you, you're, you're not going to be happy just giving every bit of money you have away and having no, no savings and, you know, no, surely not. But uh, God's word instructs us to do both and to seek to make that calculation to maximize our blessed happiness. One man said the root of all evil is that we become the kind of people who settle for the love of God, excuse me, settle for the love of money rather than the love of God. Try that again here. The root of all evil is that we become the people who settle for the love of money rather than the love of God. Well, if we learn to be faithful with a little, God knows we could be trusted with much more. And if we're unfaithful even with little, well, there'll be no end to our misery and need even if we, like Hetty, have billions of dollars to our account. 
And so this is why all the big Christian financial guru guys, uh, Dave Ramsey, Larry Burkett, and well, frankly, any Christian advisor you could name, will encourage you to get your finances in order, which they'll say, by the way, is putting God first and not last. That's a proper order. Debt, they'll say, is so often the result of gratifying some desire for happiness right now, even if we can't afford it, or poor planning, or out-of-order priorities, or whatever, all three, to the end result that we maximize our long-term unhappiness. Why don't we maximize our long-term happiness? As the wise have found that the greatest happiness comes from the wise, generous life, not impulse buying themselves into debt, but thoughtfully bringing joy to many. Paul describes the right way to be rich in his first letter to Timothy, saying, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They're to do good, be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves and a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life as the NIV puts it here. Um, You know, why don't they practice long-term happiness? That indeed begins now. Great advice. Being rich in money without being rich in generosity is to become seriously unhappy as well as spiritually poor. But even the most materially poor among us can live rich, as Paul advises, to do good, to be rich in good works, and so forth, and enter into the joy of the master. So, I, I, I draw to an end of this. I'm just uh, uh, taking this from several angles. The, the goal is to be happy, to, be a, to become a cheerful giver, because giving is the way toward happiness, considering the lowly. Being an agent of God's love in a lowly world. My first and by far the longest point, cheerfulness comes from giving. But I hasten to add, cheerfulness, uh, excuse me, cheerful giving requires discernment. Cheerful giving requires discernment. Uh, the psalm begins uh, uh, by saying, uh, how blessed is he who considers the poor, that uh, consideration or thoughtfulness or discernment means that, um, well, we want to invest in people that we can help and in things that matter. It, it does not, it's not saying that people who give to everyone or anyone will be blessed. It says he who considers the poor. That consideration is a necessary component. It, it also recognizes the fact that we only have so many resources to be generous with. So why don't we consider who needs us to help them? We are limited in our time and energy and friendship and service and hospitality capacity and whatnot. And you'll know some of you that have gone through that book, When Helping Hurts, as I've taken you from that, you, you know that there are so many ways in which people think they're helping, often by just giving a check, that actually not only ruin the receivers, but even the givers. Um, I, I remember, you know, I'll give you many illustrations of this, learning this kind of the hard way, where uh, uh, there's this, uh, well, this poor woman on the side of the road I need food, says the sign. And she looks just wretched and, and thin. And I, I so okay, go to the supermarket, get her two 
stuffed bags full of food that would uh, last anybody, even me, a week, uh, picking out high-calorie uh, food and so forth and bring it to her. And, you know, and I'm, I'm like, okay, need food? Boy, I, got, I got food. And <sighs> she uh, looks at that and says, uh, okay. All right, so I'm like, um, what do you want me to do with it? She's like, well, just put it down. And I was like, okay, put it down. And uh, she still stands there. Uh, and she's like, well, I'm, I'm just going to stand out here and get some more money for gas money. <sighs> All right. So uh, I, I go back to my car. She takes the bag. She puts it in her car. And she goes out there and she holds the sign. And, and I realize it's not food, right? I, um, I, I'm... I'm trying to solve a need that's not actually a need. There's probably another need for that money, which I don't probably want to know. And have I helped her? Probably not. Have I hurt myself? Yeah. Now I, now I have burnout, right? You do that enough times, you get disappointed. Um, it, it affects your ability to give. Cheerful giving requires some wise discernment. Who are truly the lowly? Why don't you consider them? Uh, you can read books like the book called Toxic Charity or When Helping Hurts or other books that talk about charity burnout and all the ways in which we think that poverty is a material need and when there's actually all sorts of needs which when we try to meet them in our regular uh, write-a-check kind of way, we are doing them and us more harm than we know. Unfortunately, there have also been far too many unscrupulous ministries and televangelists who use manipulative methods to separate believers from their money. And so I must emphasize that being a good steward in general calls for discernment. Understand that there's not just happiness giving things to the guy on television, right? Uh, one of those famous preachers said that God told him he would kill him if he didn't raise $8 million to build a hospital. Remember that a couple years ago? Uh, God's going to kill me if I don't raise $8 million for this hospital. By the way, the hospital was built. Uh, you got the money in. It was a complete failure. And it went out of business in a few years after it was built. So just so you know the rest of that story. Um, others manipulate you by saying, hey, if you give God a 100, God will give you 1,000. There was one newspaper that revealed that a televangelist had written uh, a letter to an elderly widow in a nursing home asking for $200 seed money even if she had to borrow it, promising that God would repay her tenfold. Well, when confronted about this letter, the preacher said that God told him to write a letter to that woman. What the preacher didn't know is that the uh, widow had been dead for three months. So if God told him to write it, he either has a very terrible sense of humor or the televangelist was simply abusing his calling. Well, I could go on with, with such stories that are so sad, they're, they're hardly funny. My point is, undiscerning giving will not make you happier. It will only take away your limited resources and lead you to be discouraged, if not actually jaded. We only have so much. Be wise as you consider the poor. Third and finally, the emphasis of uh, verses 2 and 3 especially, cheerful givers will be blessed. I mean, in addition to the happiness mentioned in the very first word of the psalm, the psalm goes on to describe then seven particular blessings to the one who remembers the poor and needy. Namely, the Lord will deliver him in the time of trouble and preserve him and keep him alive and bless him on the earth 
and not deliver him to the will of his enemies and strengthen him on his bed of illness and finally sustain or restore him to health. Well, in each case here, there is this promise for other future blessings according to our need. Well, if we give what we are able to give, God can give what he is able to give. And that is what the Lord delights to do. Um, Note that it doesn't say that the Lord is going to keep us from trouble, by the way, but only that the Lord will deliver us from that evil. It doesn't say that we'll never get sick, but that we'll be supported when we are. Our happiness may be immediate. It may not be immediate. But in any case, we are told of the long-term blessedness as the Lord cares for his people. Proverbs 19:17. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and the Lord will repay him for his deed. Remember how Jesus describes in the day in which he returns, how he very, very, gener- very, very generously will reward his servants on the basis of all they've done, and not a cup of cold water will go without his reward. Uh, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared from the foundation of the world, for I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me, and so forth. For as much as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. The Lord receives all such ministry to the poor and needy, to the lowly, to those in need, as though done to him, and by the way, you will be all the more happier later that you have done it now. Happy now? Even happier later, says the Lord. What we can give, we should give. That will make you happy. And then what, the, what only the Lord can give us according to our need, he will give that will make us very happy in the future. We read this in the case of those joyful Macedonians, that they gave themselves first to the Lord, In other words, it wasn't just that they had some sympathy for others, though that was wonderful, and they had tremendous joy and loving sympathy for helping those those poor beloved brethren suffering a famine in Judea. I mean, these people that were being persecuted and thrown out of the synagogue and excommunicated, rejected from their families because they ate with Gentiles, right? Well, we Gentiles would like to do something for them. And so, yeah, they, they saw their brothers and sisters in need, and they gave to them but it was because they were their brothers and sisters in Christ. It was Christ, as it were, suffering, the body of Christ in those people. And though they might not have even known any of them personally, being mindful of these brethren in Christ, they gave themselves first to the Lord and in a great sacrifice for people they had not met for the Lord's sake. And the Lord himself will more than repay Paul goes on to say, and you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, may be made rich. Well, anything that you give will not only make you happy now, it'll make you very happy later, as the Lord can repay as only he can repay, the psalm says. All right, so these are the three points that I wanted to make to you. Nothing so difficult or confusing, although something, something within us like, wants to talk us out of it. But it says that you want to be this kind of person. Cheerfulness will come from giving. Cheerfulness requires discernment, but cheerful givers will be blessed. In conclusion, this great hindrance to loving other people 
is in so many ways the same as we've seen in previous studies, that, that we just get too, too easily pleased. We tend to doubt that there actually is more happiness, more blessedness, more joy, more lasting pleasure in God's ways than in our own material comfort or self-service. But, you know, we only have not only so much money, but so much time. And, and, and then what? I mean, the time that we have to be such people, to do such things, quickly slips away from us. You know, when Rockefeller died, some, one of his, uh, somebody asked one of his aides how much he left behind. His aide said, all of it, all of it. You've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. Uh, Paul reminds us uh, of this in uh, 1 Timothy 6, verse 7. We brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. Here we are. Um, we have something for a little while. We have uncertain riches. Moth and rust even now destroy, and thieves break in and steal from our brokerage accounts. So why not be laying up for ourselves some treasure in heaven where moth or rust neither doesn't destroy and thieves don't break in and steal? And work on some long-term happiness. Jesus is not against investment. He's against foolish investment, uncertain investment. Why don't you pursue certain return and certain happiness? Give alms, he goes on to say. Provide yourselves money bags that don't grow old, a treasure in the heavens that doesn't fail. Or uh, I, I love this illustration another author gave. That suppose you, you come into a big city art museum and um, uh, you see somebody taking pictures off the wall and carrying them under his arm. And you say, what are you doing? I'm becoming an art collector, he says. Those aren't really yours, you say. And besides, you're never going to get those out of here. You'll have to go out just as you came in. Oh, I don't bother myself with thoughts of leaving, says the man. I'm all about the here and now. Look, people in the halls are seeing me as an important dealer. You call this man, if not a fool, actually insane. But so is a person who's exerting himself to collect things which he's not able to keep. Sooner or later, he said, look, you're going to have to go out the way you came in. You, you could only evade it for so long. Why not leave happy? And so Paul says, you know, godliness with contentment is great gain. And happy are those who consider the poor, says the psalmist. People that are money-loving do so for the sake of gain. Nothing wrong with gain. But God has repeatedly offered us great gain. And why would we be settled with so little when so much is being offered? Why would we seek to have the heady lifestyle when you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? Where do you want your heart to go? For Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Why not send it to heaven? You were made in order to be like your Lord, gracious, thoughtful, ministering in a generous way. When he says, give and all these things shall be added to you, give up small pursuits and uncertain returns and be satisfied with nothing less than supreme happiness and great gain.
and then you truly will be rich. Well, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you again for the wisdom of such psalms that challenge our worldly wisdom and that uh, show us a way to a richer life and a greater happiness than, than the world has known. So we pray, our Father, that you would uh, enrich our own congregation, that being enriched with all liberality, that we may have an abundance to, to give and not to spare. We pray that you would give us uh, eyes to see and um, make opportunities uh, available for us to give, that considering the poor, we might indeed lend to you, knowing that you will more than withhold.